Hey there, here's a quick note. This podcast contains general financial advice only. That means it's not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So don't act on the information until you've spoken with your financial advisor. You'll find our full disclosure, disclaimer, and link to our financial services guide in the show notes. Paul, thanks for joining me on the Australian Investors Podcast. Uh, oh, you're very welcome. Great to be here. Yeah, it's, uh, it's not every day I get to step into the office and speak with a fund manager who's been investing for just on or just nearly 20 years and has outperformed the market uh, in that time, uh, particularly in Australian equities, mate. So it is my pleasure to have you on the show. And uh, as you may know from some of the questions that I sent over, we typically start with a bit about you and then we talk about investment process and maybe some of the things that I'm particularly interested in today. Uh, basically, you know, how you've not only survived in the industry um, running the um, Fidelity Fund, but also, you know, some of the lessons learned along the way and what's enabled you to thrive um, throughout many different market conditions. But I thought this is a quick fire Q&A at the start here, made a bit of fun. I'll just throw one question to you quickly, which is, if you could pick three financial metrics when you're studying a company's financials, what would you include? I think the three I'd focus on, you'd want one to be on balance sheet. I think that's a great starting point, and that's probably debt to debt plus equity or some sort of interest coverage ratio or something like that. So you really want to make sure the balance sheet's in good shape. I'd then pick probably free cash flow yield. Um, so you want to know the, 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 you know the cash flow coming into the business and what is its relationship to the valuation. Then probably, finally, some sort of peg ratio, which, which basically is a PE ratio. Um, against a growth ratio. So it just basically tells you whether the PE ratio is consistent with the growth of the company. They're probably three that I'd look at, you know, rounding out any investment. I like that because you've basically got, you've started, you by starting that uh, answer, you've started with the risk, looking at the what's on the balance sheet, um, move through to cash conversion, as we know, cash is king. And then you're talking about how do we measure the, I guess, the, the, the put a value on the growth and then the current uh, position of the business. So I really like that answer, mate. It's, it's, it's well-rounded. <laughs> Thank um, you. So let's go back to a younger Paul. Yeah. Did you always want to be an investor, get into business? Was this something that was, I guess, in your childhood or in your DNA even? Look, I think so. I mean, it's always been there. I've definitely been interested in markets more broadly and all, all sorts of markets. Um, my, my parents were really small business people. Um, okay. And dad, you know, uh, mum and dad were always interested in markets and, and, you know, what's happening in the world and how, you know, I guess I've always basically I've been fascinated by how companies make money. What is it? What's the business model? Um, as I grew up, I, you know, I did my undergrad in commerce, um, which has sort of accentuated the interest in, in you know, more broader interest mm. in, in uh, companies and, and investing in those companies. I never really knew from an early age I wanted to be a fund manager or anything. But I guess I, I always had an incredible curiosity and interest in, well, really how do businesses make money and what it is, about, you know, the different business models that were, you know, some were successful, some, you know, not so. But, yeah, really, um, my parents were, were very interested. Like I said, they were small business people. Mm. What, what kind of small business was it? Oh, they ran a, they ran a range of different things, actually. So uh, they, they were always on the move. They had sort of a general... Um, like a sort of a small uh, corner store type uh, mm -hmm. supermarket. Mum um, was also had florist shops uh, through the time as well. So those sort of, uh, sort of, you know, like, like I said, sort of small, smaller businesses. But they did have a range of different ones that they're always involved in. They're always looking at. They're always looking at the next thing. 
Yeah, it's uh, it reminds me of my childhood, Paul. I grew up on a flower farm, and we used to supply the flowers to the florists. Oh, well, there um, you go. Mum probably bought it from maybe they bought it from your <laughs> parents or something. Yeah, maybe it's. Uh, I tell you what, it was a pretty hard industry. Like obviously, very physically intensive, um, and also uh, the margins. I don't ever know really. I didn't go back and study who captured all the value, but I can tell you what it wasn't us. Um, <laughs> so I can tell you that much. Um, well, I did hear uh, in a video that you 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 produced quite a few years ago. You, you talked a little bit about why you wanted to uh, work for Fidelity, mm-hmm. but maybe you can take us through. So you've studied commerce. What led you to Fidelity in the late nineties or mid to late nineties? Yes. So started undergrad commerce. I actually started with accounting firms in Australia, but I was working in the management consulting division of those accounting firms. Right. Um, I used to do a lot, while I was management consulting, I used to, used to, we used to do a lot of um, work in the corporate finance when they were busy, you know, we'd go over and help them and, and vice versa. And then speaking to the corporate finance guys, they'd always say, well, if, you, if you're interested in this, you know, get off and uh, get yourself to business school. That's pretty much what I did. I went to London Business School, did a Masters of Finance, and then actually was lucky enough to join. So the more people I talked to, um, to me, the funds management interest, uh, industry had the same really interesting, um, you know, about companies, how they make money, you know, industry structure, yeah. had the same stuff as corporate finance, but didn't have a lot of the negatives around uh, corporate finance. So to me, it was actually, it was really interesting. And then you got to execute on your own ideas um, in, mm-hmm. in um, funds management. So, and then when I looked around at all the possibilities to get into funds management, Fidelity was really the standout because it was, um, you know, obviously global, a global leader, had the opportunity to learn from, you know, some of the, you know, best fund managers in the world, which has really been, um, you know, part of the reason I've been here such a long time as well is that, you know, I'm still learning from those different fund managers, different styles, and hopefully I've sort of cherry-picked what I like from a range of different mm. um, different portfolio managers. So it's, it's been a... It's been a lifelong apprenticeship, really. Mm. If we could just, um, I guess, hone in on that, that, the first few years at Fidelity, did you go through, or did you get ment- mentored by any investors or were there investors who even maybe who you read about or just, you know, via distance you learned from um, that you can recall that had an impression on, on you in those earlier days? Yeah, definitely had um, a range. Like I said, that the, the beauty of working at a company like Fidelity is really the range of, of portfolio managers you get exposure to. So had the great, um, been extremely fortunate, got to spend a bit of time with Peter Lynch, who's probably the most famous right. portfolio manager that came out of Fidelity. Um, I spent a lot of time in our London, well, I started in our London office, spent about a year in our Boston office, Hong Kong, before before coming back to Australia. But, um, yeah, I mean, the ones that stick in my mind are, are Peter Lynch in the US, Anthony Bolton in the UK, Colin Stone in the UK. Um, actually, a very early experience was with um, uh, one of the portfolio managers called Rich Fenton. He was our deep value fund manager. And the, the first sector I ever covered as an analyst, because I started mm-hmm. as an analyst, was the engineering sector, um, capital goods conglomerates. And back when I started in 1997, that was getting hit by the Asian crisis. So mm. all of their growth was really around Asia. And I've, and I've started on this sector. I'm trying to learn it, coming up to speed as quickly as possible. The stocks are collapsing because of the Asian crisis because all the growth was going away. And I remember sitting down with Rich Fenton and saying, look, you know, what these things are just 
you know, and they talk about markers, talk about falling knives, trying to catch a falling knife. Um, and he just said, look, yeah, you've just got to look at it. You've just got to forget about profitability, forget about, um, you know, traditional valuation methods. You've just got to look at how these things trough. So, like I said, forget about profitability because they'll lose all of their profits. Just focus on hard asset-backed valuations like uh, net tangible assets or uh, price uh, enterprise value to order book, enterprise value to sales. And tra traditionally, if those companies have troughed at, let's say, 0.4 times enterprise value, EV to sales, and it gets back to that level, importantly, you need to make sure that the balance sheet is really strong. So you need to make sure that company is going to be able to make it through the mm -hmm. cyclical bad times and, and, in, and recover to the good times. Um, but if it troughs at 0.4 times, the balance sheet looks great. You've really just got to step off the cliff effectively and buy into that company. And all you're really doing is increasing your odds. Um, you, you know, you're really putting the odds in your favour. So um, while they might trough at 0.4 times uh, through a cycle, maybe they average at one time. So you just put, you just really stack the odds in your favour that you're going to be able to invest in this company at 0.4 and, and uh, take it back up to a one-time sale. Now, that doesn't mean if you invest at 0.4, it doesn't mean it's not going to go down to 0.3-time sales, but it's really stacking the odds in your favour that you're going to be able to survive because it's got the balance sheet and it, it you know heads back to a more normalised valuation of sort of one-time sale, one mm -hmm. sales. And spending the time with Rich Fender was invaluable in that period because, like I said, I you know, fresh in, didn't really know the sector as well. You know, I was learning the sector, learning how to invest uh, into deep cyclicals, and he, um, you know, he was fantastic. It's it's that kind of ties back into those three factors that you brought up at the beginning of the show. Um, you've got that backstop of the physical assets and the balance sheet um, in time of crisis. It's kind of what a lot of people go to and, and um, I guess shrewd investors go to as well. You didn't, if you get a, I guess, a diversified basket of those types of companies, um, you know, that, that's how you can build a portfolio of value stocks. Um, the, the Fidelity Australian Shares Fund has outperformed the ASX 200 by about 2.3% per year after fees uh, since 2003, which is just an incredible achievement um, for you and the team. When I mentioned to a couple of my followers on social media that I was having a chat with a fund manager who had outperformed for so long, I got a whole different range of questions around, you know, what's your edge? Um, what, is, what are some of the reasons you've done so well when so many others haven't? And I guess I'm just looking for some of the big ideas here, Paul, over your career, whether it's what you've learned along the way or what you can reflect on now that has enabled you to produce such good outcomes for your clients? Look, I think there's a few things in there. Oh, and I, I guess what, you know, at a, at a fidelity level, if I start there first, um, you know, I think you've got a you know, really good team in Sydney. We, what we've set up, we've we really sort of institutionalised the process. So we meet pretty much with the whole market every quarter. Um, mm -hmm. And we meet with them whether we like them, hate them or anywhere in between. <laughs> And to me, that's a really good way of picking up when things are changing, you know, that, those sort of turning points. Now, we're doing that every quarter, being with the whole market every quarter, but looking out the sort of five to seven years. And the duration is important. I'll, I'll come back to duration as well. Um, but to me, that institutionalising the process, is, you know, is really important. I think the other part of that, so having a, you know, a good team, a big team here in Sydney is important. But 
you know, at Fidelity, what we do here in Australia is what we do everywhere else right around the world. And a lot of the time, um, you know, while a company might be based here, their competitors, suppliers, distributors, customers are in other parts of the world. And having a global platform, a global network, you know, we can be talking to that company's, um, you know, suppliers, competitors, um, customers, you know, to really form an investment view, um, mm. which I think is, is critical. So it's really having the global network and it's having the sort of institutionalizing the local. Um, but I, I, I do think the other key aspects are probably duration. So, well, if I look at the portfolio, we the, the, the fund itself will have between 30 and 50 stocks. I think below 30, it's, it's not really a diversified portfolio, but above 50, you're starting to get too close to the market. So it's concentrated enough to deliver the oomph to get the outperformance for clients, but it's doing it really in a, in a risk-controlled way. And the other thing that we're doing is we're typically taking a longer duration. So we're, we're looking out five um, to seven years, uh, which is also, I think, a little bit different from the rest of the market. I just think that gives a, it's giving us our edge by, by focusing on the long term rather than, you know, what, what's going to be happening in the next three, six months, one year. That's very difficult. That's very difficult to, to, to work out. Fundamentally, when we look at individual companies, we're just trying to look at difference from market. Now, I just it's easier to identify that difference when you look out a little bit a, mm. a bit further. And the Australian market does tend to sort of herd as well. So all of a sudden, the whole market falls in love with a company, falls in love with the management team. And that might be right. But, you know, what we try to do when we look at them every quarter and we look at their peers around the world is so, well, is that, is that picture of the – is the market picture of the company correct? Uh, and often we'll look back and say, well, actually, you know, no, we think there's we think there's differences there, you know, both positive and negative. And then um, investing or not investing based on those differences has really paid off um, over the long term. There's, I mean, there are so many things that we could um, pull out of that. One of the things that I've heard you say before is the 20% turnover in the portfolio, which if we take the, the flip side of that, it's basically an average holding period of five years. Maybe you can explain why that's uh, why that leads to better outcomes for your clients and for you as an investor. But maybe um, I'll also throw something in. Would you be surprised to know that the median um, holding period for active funds is around seven point four months? Yeah. <laughs> well, first of all, I'm not surprised to hear that because I hear yeah. people talking about. I also hear turnover. So um, yeah, that that I to me that's. It's not surprising, but I, I do think that's unfortunate. I do, mm. you know, given the CGT rules in Australia for a start, you want to be holding things through 12 months because all of a sudden you, you have the, you know, you get the 50% discount. So mm. um, I think holding investments in Australia shorter than 12 months is, you know, is a mistake. It, you, you might have to do it given as, as conditions change, but uh, look, I, yeah, I definitely think you should be at least going through a year. Yeah. Um, so it's not surprising, but you know I don't think it's the right way to manage a fund in Australia. I, the twenty percent, I'm I'm really happy about because I think it does a few different things. Well, as you said, first of all, it tells you, you know, what we what we say we're doing, we're actually doing, which is a, which is a five year holding period. I think it is important from a from a from a tax perspective. So, um, you know, the fund has been quite uh, tax. Uh, efficient because we are ho always mm -hmm. holding, you know, typically holding past that uh, twelve-month period, which gets you your discount. It also the fund has been low cost in terms of actual mm -hmm. tr trading costs as well. 
So it does a few different things. One is you don't want to, if you're trading very actively, you're often pushing the stock around, which not just the actual brokerage costs, but you're actually, there's, there's, co there's sort of costs associated with, well, if I'm selling it and I push it down 10%, you're, you're losing 10% of your value in just pushing the stock down 10%. So if I can do it very slowly mm. and very like an evolution rather than a revolution, you minimise those the costs linked to moving the stock, but you also minimise just your trading costs. So at the end of the day, the investor gets a lower cost fund uh, and gets a better and gets a better tax outcome. And um, I think, like I said, by taking a longer duration view. Um, you know, we're much more focused on. We, we think we can differentiate from the market and actually back companies we think are going to deliver, you know, great long-term returns. And I, often companies also say to us, look, we, you know, we love you as an investor because they want to make, that companies themselves, when they're making long-term decisions, that's actually what's creating the value in the company. So if the company can go, right, I want to make a decision for the next 10 years, I don't want to make a decision for the next three months, um, that's actually creating the value in the company. And as a, an investor that's supporting that longer timeframe, um, mm. I think that's, that, that's a win-win. That's a win-win for everybody. I think this is the, the kind of the ripple effect of investor expectations through to what companies actually deliver. Um, there's often that mismatch, a mismatch between being a long-term investor and the expectations we set and the reporting that we get, whether it's monthly or quarterly from our companies or from our fund managers. Um, Given that you've been doing this for such a long time, Paul, um, I'm keen keen to know: have, have any clients stuck with you since from the beginning till now? Yes, and um, I, you know, I, I, you know, I've been incredibly impressed. That that's right, as you as you noted, we've almost been going almost twenty years now. The fund mm. itself, and that's right, we do have many clients <laughs> that have been with us pretty much right from from day one, or at least you know in the early years. And we've also had, um, you know, research houses and consultants back us from a very early period as well, which has been incredibly pleasing. Um, and then that also shows you that they're, you know, they're making long-term calls as well. Yeah, because I guess that kind of, that's feeding on itself. So if you've got that, you've got that long-term support from your clients, then you can have the con conviction in the companies and you don't have to worry about window dressing or buying and selling to make a, a quarterly or a monthly look more impressive than it actually is. Absolutely, and that's right. And I mean, I think it's also, you know, having those clients where you can, you know, because everybody, um, every fund manager underperforms over certain periods, and you know, there's always tougher periods, there's always better periods and tougher periods. It's actually about effectively having more wins than losses over the long term, and that's really what it's mm. about. But having clients that support you through um, those tougher periods, or uh, you know, makes a huge difference, and. Uh, that does help you stick to your knitting and make sure, uh, you know, you, you are focused on the long-term and delivering long-term returns for your clients. Mm. Uh, Paul, there's one thing that comes in the fun flyer, and I've heard you talk about it before, which is the 360-degree view. Uh, can you explain the kind of the investment process that analysts go through and your team goes through um, leading up to maybe to when you make a decision and how you make a decision? Um, anywhere you want to take that, you can, you can go with it. Yeah, look, I think uh, the company meeting is the central part of the process to us. As I, was, as okay. I highlighted, in Australia, um, we're meeting with the whole market every quarter. So we will, you know, the analyst will run the meeting, the portfolio manager will be 
be in the meeting, there could be a range of people, and then coming out of it, we'll, we'll typically dis discuss the stock. But the 360-degree view is really a, a, taking that, um, you know, customers, competitors, suppliers, distributors to the to the next level as well. So if I maybe give you a couple of examples. So, mm. for instance, uh, you know, Rio Tinto's, uh, well, B BHP maybe is a better example. BHP is an Australian company, um, you know, based in Melbourne. We're meeting with BHP, talking to, to them. But uh, BHP sells a lot of their products into the steel mills of the world and, you know, a range of other um, customers. So we, um, we're not only meeting with them in Australia, but we are meeting with, you know, we've um, got a team based in Shanghai that talking to Chinese companies. So in, in Shanghai, we've got a steel analyst. Now they're talking to Bow Steel, looking at Bow Steel, whether we should be investing in Bow Steel. But they're also asking them what are their steel production profile looks like? What do they think about the price of iron ore? What do they think about the price of coke and gold? Um, how do they think about consolidation within the industry? Now, they're important things to work out what should, we should be doing in China, but they're also really important factors when we're analysing um, uh, BHP. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, we're doing that for BHP, we're doing that for Rio. But, it, you know, they're very global companies but even very domestic companies like um, Coles and Woolworths, you know, they're pretty much 100% domestic. But Coles and Woolworths' key competitors are, you know, Aldi, uh, Costco. Now, Aldi's mm. German, Costco's uh, American. So actually understand, having analysts based in those markets and understanding what those companies are doing helps us understand the strategy of Coles, uh, Coles and Woolworths. Or it could just be trends, you know, the Australian Stock Exchange is only one stock exchange, but there are other stock exchanges around the world and we look at the trends that are happening in those different markets. So by, um, you know, looking at their competitors, uh, which could be Aldi and Costco, or their customers, which could be Baus, you know, and, and on the steel side, we've got a, a an analyst in China looking at Baus Steel, we've got an analyst in Japan looking at Nippon Steel, we've got an analyst in Korea looking at Costco, that are all feeding into that model. Uh, like I said, could be customers, could be um, competitors, could be suppliers, distributors, you know, right across the board. And that really, that is the 360 degree view when we're looking at an Australian company that we're getting and that we're putting into the models and that when we analyze that company, I, I, it's, um, you know, that total view, that's what we're, at. that 360 degree view is our sort of picture of that company. And then what we do is we compare that against what how we see the market's picture of that company. And um, often we'll get difference from that 360 degree view. And that's when we get really interested, both positive and negative, uh, based on that difference. Given your investment, your ideal holding period is five plus years, um, how do you go about valuing companies? So once you've got that view and um, the reports are generated or the research is generated, how do you go about valuing them? Yeah, look, it's um, we do a very sort of you know, like it's actually a very significant um, undertaking when we value a company. I guess we also don't really have a particular mantra on on valuation. We'll we'll do multiple different. So we'll look at net, you know, we'll do a um, discounted cash flow, look at net present value, uh, but we'll also look at very simple price earnings ratio, we'll look at dividend yield, we'll look at free cash flow yield, um, we'll do hard asset-backed valuations. And like I said, different different periods of time, different valuations are more relevant. So 
uh, through uh, through a crisis, often you're looking at hard asset-backed valuations that are really important to give you that to to be starting to look at trough where you should be investing based on trough valuations. But mm -hmm. at other times, net present value will be the best. Or sometimes it's just PE or PE to growth, or pe like I talked about the peg ratio. So we try to surround the company with all those different valuations. Now, if they're all pointing, pointing in the same direction, that's obviously an easy uh, decision. But sometimes you, they don't always point in the same direction. Mm. And that's why sometimes you need to focus on through different parts of the cycle and different economic conditions, you need to focus on different styles of valuation. And, you know, I, I just look back to the um, global financial crisis and, you know, some of our peers had a real focus on net present value. Now, that just didn't work through the GFC. And a lot of those companies that um, had a good uh, value through when you looked at the net present value, they just completely blew up because they had large debt. Um, they had large debt on their balance sheet, and those companies blew up in the GFC. So just having that mantra or that one valuation technique can really catch you out in different um, economic conditions and you know in different market conditions. So we like to surround it by a whole range of different valuation valuation techniques, and then work out what is the most appropriate given the current economic environment, given the current market conditions. Mm. Uh, if I could just loop back through to the research that you get as portfolio manager with so many analysts and so, you know, throughout the Fidelity Network, but then also company meetings, your own notes, your own you know, economic updates, how do you filter out the noise and focus on the companies? Like how do you spend a typical day digesting all that information? What strategies do you use? Oh, and that, that is an excellent question. And that actually is, I think, a lot of the trick as a portfolio manager right. because we do get an incredible amount of information. And, and you rightly point out, uh, because we're Fidelity, we're probably getting more right. information from around the world. So actually working out, you know, filtering out the noise is, is, is critical. It's really trying to focus on, you know, what's important rather. You know, sometimes you can, there's some things that are really interesting. I always think of it, you know, like they're the shiny baubles. They're really interesting but there's complete. There's no value in look going down that rabbit hole. Or, so you've actually got to be quite disciplined to focus on, um, you know, what's important, and you know, completely ignore what you think is unimportant. Like I said, it can be really interesting, but it, but it'll be unimportant. So I typically look at a few different factors. I mean, to me, noise is, you know, so the the, the key factors are important versus unimportant, mm -hmm. um, facts versus emotion. So important is, you know, so noise is unimportant. It's emotions is the other thing. So, you know, in, in markets where you just get caught up by the emotion of the market, and sometimes it can make you do things that you don't really want to do. You know, often investment um, theory is very simple uh, to know, but it's actually quite hard to execute. And that's, uh, to me, that a lot of that's the emotions of the market. I think it's also long-term versus short-term. So the long-term is you know is, is devoid of noise the short term is all about is is all about noise reactive proactive it's the same thing so noise is reactive it's short term it's emotions it's unimportant so it's just trying to filter all of those things now when i look at that in my everyday you know all of those so my worst days if i'm sitting at my desk watching the stock market go up or down mm -hmm. i'm learning nothing I'm getting impacted by the emotion of the market and I'm looking at the very short-term price moves. 
So that's all noise. That's my worst days. My best days is when I don't sit at my desk and I'm out talking to companies and I'm trying to understand how they make money. I'm trying to understand their business model. I'm trying to understand the, the, the current conditions. And I haven't looked at the market all day. I get to the end of the day, I've met five or six companies. I felt like I've learned a lot, got to know them, got to know those companies much better, understand their business model. That's how, um, that's how you make you know, good long-term returns. And that's also how you eliminate uh, the noise. So I had, um, you know, I, I talked about Anthony Bolton at the start. Mm. He, he um, is a bit of a mentor to me in the, in the London office. Very good, um, very good investor. He'd say, look, often um, you just got to turn off your screens as well. Like right? you, you react to what the, the stocks are doing and you don't want the market to sort of push you around and force you into doing things you don't really want to do. So just just turn off your screens. Don't look at what's going up or down. Just focus on you know the companies, understanding the companies. You know what what you can learn from the companies. Mm. One of the questions, Paul, that I got sent through, and I really like that answer by the way. One of the the, the questions that I got sent through um, was. How long does it take you to build that conviction in a company? Given that you tend to hold companies for so long, you don't want to buy today and be out in six months. How, like you, maybe just as a rule of thumb, uh, how long does it take you to get conviction to put to put a, a company in the portfolio? Yeah, once again, another 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 great one. And, and I always talk about, like I said, I I'm investing based on an evolution rather than a revolution. So. Mm. Um, because we're meeting with the entire market every quarter, basically I'm building that conviction as, as I meet with that company. So the company, the management team will be saying, okay, well, this is, um, you know, this is how we go about doing things. This is how we're structured. This is our business model. This is how we make money. This is what our advantages are. This is our weaknesses. And then through time, you'll be able to work out, well, are they telling you something that's right? Or are they telling you, are they, you know, is it wrong what they're saying? Or are they fabricating or not? Fabricating is probably the wrong word, but are they exaggerating, you know, different elements? So you gain conviction as they, as you talk through and you understand the business model and that comes to fruition and then different market environments hit the company and actually what they're saying really is what um, is happening. You feel like actually they're right on top of, you know, they're right on top of it or maybe their competitors are talking positively about the company or something that they're doing. So you gain, you gain conviction through time. Mm. So typically I would start, once I initially invest in a company, I'll start with a small position and then each quarter as we meet the management, but we're looking out five to seven years, meeting them every quarter, um, each time, you know, we're gaining conviction and under different market conditions and scenarios, you can see whether that's playing out or not. And then you're gaining conviction because actually it is. What they're telling you is actually what's, what's happening. So I'm gaining conviction, I'm building that position. So I guess there's no fixed rule that it takes me one year, two years, three years to get to a position. But, I mean, it, it could be as short as probably a year and probably could be as long as a full, you know, five-year cycle. Mm. But you, I gain conviction, or we gain conviction through those meetings o over the longer term. Um, there was a question that's come through and it's come from a fund manager called uh, Wayne Jones who... Um, runs a uh, mid-cap Aussie equities portfolio. And he asked the question, uh, basically what generated the performance when you look back through time? Where, have, I guess if you, because we, we often do attribution analysis, that's what I, my old job was, Paul, when I would 
um, study funds and um, and do research ratings. So when you've done those in the past, um, where have you attributed some of your your, your winners and, and some of your losses maybe? Yeah, so I'll, I'll look at this two different ways. So if, if you look at it over the whole almost 20-year period now, um, the one thing that the attribution comes from individual stocks, right? So that shouldn't be a surprise. You know, Fidelity yep. is a bottom. Fidelity is a bottom-up stock selection firm. So our the attribution comes from picking the right companies. It actually doesn't come from being overweight resources or underweight resources or overweight banks or underweight banks. Has, it doesn't come from sector allocations. It comes from individual companies um, and just picking within the banking sector, picking the right bank, being invested in the right bank and, and resources being invested in the right company within the resource sector. Now, when um, we sit back and have a look at you know what sort of companies or traditionally um, where we've done really well is the compound, what we call the compounders. So businesses that typically have a high return on invested capital that can reinvest at a high rate. And that's really how you create, that's really how companies create value. So if they can, like, if you've got a, and that, what that's called is sort of effectively beating the fade. So every high return on invested mm. capital business, over time it should come back to, you know, the average, uh, average returns. But if they can maintain that higher rate for just that little bit longer, that is actually creating um, creating the value, and you're getting earnings upgrades and you know expansion through that period. So typically, we've um, the fund has done very well on those sort of compounders, or you know, um, uh, you know that that's what's driven the, the the outperformance. The our losers have probably come from a couple of different areas, and it's also um, you know, you obviously try to improve, you know, you want to look back and say, well, where did you get things wrong? Mm -hmm. or, how can you improve as well? I probably put that down to two different factors. One is, um, one is, uh, you know, on the, on the balance sheet, whether we just haven't quite got it right on the balance sheet. And sometimes that can come from unusual positions. So it might not necessarily just be that they've got, uh, you know, too much debt. It could come from their inventories are blowing out. Um, they've changed the business model that it's now much more inventory heavy and they're having to run a lot of extra inventories. So that can blow out the balance sheet sometimes and you just got to be focused on all those different areas. So a couple of the companies that um, that happened to. And then the second one is sort of trying to work out, I'm always trying to work out what's cyclical and what's structural. So obviously you want mm -hmm. to, in a, in a decline, in a cyclical decline, you want to buy a structural grower because sometimes if, if the market's saying, well, it's actually all cyclical, but you think, oh, no, it's just cyclical now, but it's structural long-term, that's a great opportunity to buy into some of the structural. But also it, when things are doing really well and it's, it's, it has been a cyclical growth and then the company's arguing, well, actually, no, it's not cyclical, it's structural, um, you just don't, you don't want to buy into that argument. And, you know, pretty much all through that, you know, my investing career at Fidelity, I'm not sure I've ever seen uh, a company that was cyclical turn into structural. Uh, so, you know, it, it's never happened. And, I mean, it could happen, but you know, it's highly unlikely. And I think I look at where we've got caught out, it's typically thinking something is structural when it's really cyclical. Um, mm. And so don't <laughs> always... Um, uh, you know, always come back to that. You know, if, if you think it's different this time, it, it's most likely not. Yeah, right. So what, um, what f factors would you look at if you're trying to determine 
is it those those principles that you mentioned you know when you're doing your dd every quarter you're looking at return on invested capital are those the the things that you're looking at the facts versus the emotion i guess of it to determine if a company is structural versus cyclical and able to beat the fade is that are those the kind of kind of factors that you're looking at like return on invested capital um, look, I think structural versus cyclical is, is probably less about ratios. It's more about just understanding understanding the business model itself. So, right. trying to work out well, if you look, and that that that's more about growth. That's more about growth going forward. So, like I said, if a company has historic, well, I guess if it's historically been cyclical, and just you know, so uh, and all of a sudden the company's arguing, it's, it's on, a, it's done really well, and they're trying to argue, well, actually now it's structural, right? Like I said, you probably was, well, you want to defer to the company's history, I think. So mm. it's just not getting, it's not buying into the, um, yeah, I mean, I guess that's what yeah. tends to happen is everybody falls in love with it because it's done really well and then people start believing that it's structural, not cyclical. Um, yeah, so it probably is just focusing on <laughs> just, you know, trying to get rid of the emotions, look at the history, look at the company's history, um, it has been cyclical. The likelihood is it's not going to be cyclical. It's 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 not going to be structural going forward. It's going to be cyclical. Mm. Um, and then the companies that has you know that the other way around when it's had a cyclical downturn, but you still think the structural growth that really is about you know that really is about the future, understanding markets, looking we're probably at a SWOT analysis of that company or the industry. Why should why should this company continue to grow strongly? Um, you know, in, in the future. And that could be about penetration. Um, that could be just purely about the, you know, the products that they're, that they're selling, they're designing, the quality of those, those products as well. Here's a question for you, Paul, that's probably not necessarily process-related, although it's, and it's more personality-related, is one thing that I've noticed with a lot of successful investors is they tend to be avid readers. Do you... Do you, I guess, subscribe to that notion? And I guess, do you yourself read widely, like outside of finance and investing? I would subscribe to that, and I do read widely. Um, I'm very interested in a range of things. I mean, I am interested in um, finance and finance books, and I, you know, I've read, uh, you know, vast, <laughs> vast amount of them. I would also say that I think it's also helpful to read long shelf life, you know, so there's, there's reading and there's reading, right? So, mm. I, you know, newspapers, the, the whole news 24-hour, seven days a week news cycle can be a lot of noise as well. So you got to work out what, in informa- you know, what's noise and what's, what's long-term. So I actually think there's a lot more value in reading a long shelf life book than and, and learning about the history of finance, the history of investments, what's happened in different periods, what's worked for someone, what hasn't worked for someone, um, or the theories around things. I think there's a lot more value in that than potentially reading the daily newspaper um, that's going to provide you with a lot of noise. But I do I do think, and I also think it's important, um, you know, I love, I love a lot of, you know, not just finance, but whether it's psychology or, or novels, um, I think that you know it's really important to you know to, to, to read widely yeah and I probably that probably just comes down to curiosity as well I think, um, mm. I think one of the key ingredients in investment is just curiosity always trying to understand well why does that company why is that company done well why that one hasn't done so well what are the ingredients 
So I think probably someone that reads a lot maybe is a curious person, which maybe that's the maybe that's the connection. But I also mm. do believe that long shelf life books are much more critical. You know that you want to read that if you want to be a good investor, you want to read long shelf life books rather than you know a daily newspaper. Mm. Yeah, I I agree completely. Um, there is one final question uh, which is around your outlook but um if anyone is interested in uh reading what you have to write uh, i'll have a link in the show notes so um you'll be able to go back in in paul's archives and look at what he's written to clients and to the public it's all all there online on the fidelity website so check out the show notes um if you're if you're listening or watching it'll be available in the description below but paul one final question i have for you is you know you've been through some pretty hairy periods in your investing career, you know, the early 2000s, um, the GFC, we've got even the COVID crash of 2020. I actually watched a video, a webinar you did during <laughs> just coming out of COVID and how you remained long-term focused and you talked a lot about the economy at the time. You know, in 2022, not to timestamp this conversation too much, but how, do you, how are you seeing Australian equities and the Australian share market broadly um, and are you as excited today as you were when you started investing? Yeah, on, um, good question. I, the, other, the other thing I've done when I look back over, um, yeah, so the fund's been going almost 20 years, but I've been with Fidelity for 25 years now. Mm. And uh, I look back over that whole 25-year period, I think I've been investing in one form or an analyst um, through about 10 different crises, which is, you know, the Asian crisis, the Russian bond default, the tech wreck, uh, sovereign debt crisis, GFC, COVID, um, SARS-1, COVID, SARS-2. Um, so there's been a, you know, now they're all, everyone seems to be, the market commentary was there, one in a hundred year events, but there, there seems to be an awful lot of one in a hundred year events. So, you know, if you if over 25 years, you've got had 10 different crises, you know, that's one every two and a half years, which I think is, um, you know, you know, is incredible as well. But when you look, so if you're thinking about 10 crises over 25 years and over that same 25 year period, uh, the Aussie market's done about sort of 10 or 11% per year um, compounding, that's quite phenomenal. That also just tells you if you're backing against the market, you know, you really got your, the odds aren't in your favor. Mm. Um, so 10 different crises, some of the biggest, the GFC was the second biggest in history. We had, you know, we've had major, major um, downturns, but the market's still done 10 to 15%, which also tells you that the, you know, long-term wealth is created and um, protected really through businesses. And I, I guess I've always been a believer in that, like, you know, whether that's come from my parents or, or just, you know, being involved in markets for such a long time now, I think, wealth is created through businesses um, and you know, also protected through businesses as well. When you look at Australia, I think um, we're all in the, exactly the right spot because once again, if you look at the long term, uh, and this, and when I say the long term, I'm talking about 120 years. So if you go back to 1900 to, to 2020, um, the Australian stock market's been the best performing stock market in the world over the long term. Um, now, when uh, people have looked and that they've looked at that for a whole range of different reasons and what's really driven that you know it's it's a bit subjective but people have normally come back commentators come back to several different points one is 
Australia's done so well because we're a new world country. We've got strong population growth. And when you think about it, that's really important. You know, our, the, our population has grown at about four or five times that of the OECD average. And more people just means more houses, more goods, more services. There's a structural growth underpinning to it. Um, and I think that still continues as we, as we go forward. It was a bit of a hiatus through COVID, but I think we're going to, you know, that, that um, population growth will resume as, as we're learning to live with COVID. Um, the second part was this, we are lucky enough to have a, an excellent natural resource base and a, and, a, and a low cost natural resource base. So the tons mined in Australia has never really gone down. And that is also another, we know we're just lucky enough to have that. Third one is that we've got good corporate governance. So um, when you look across the world, GDP growth of a country doesn't always equate, so high GDP growth doesn't always equate into mm -hmm. strong stock market performance. And, it, and the, and the Transmission factor is really corporate governance. So if you've got strong protect, uh, shareholder protection, strong property rights, you're likely to see that growth convert into shareholder um, perform, uh, share, uh, stock market performance. But what what they actually found was the best correlation in the long term is the dividend yield of a market plus the real growth in dividends. And when you think about it, that's how we earn as shareholders. That's how we earn our economic rent. We earn it from the dividends we receive, and the, and, but importantly, the growth in those dividends. And Australia remains one of the highest dividend yield markets in the world, partly because um, we don't double tax dividends. We've got the um, franking system. And then also we've got, because of all of those factors, we've got real, um, good growth in dividends as well. So um, and now you look at all of those key factors, and I think they're still very much in place as we look forward um, you know, for Australia as well. So I, I, um, I remain very positive on, on the sort of longer term outlook. And I think that's the key thing. As an investor in Australia, you don't want to get too caught up in well, what's going to happen the next three months, six months, year. But if you start to look out at five, and I think if, if we sit in five years time, if we're looking back on this period, um, I think we'll look back at it as being an excellent time to have, to have invested into the Australian stock market. Mm, Paul, that's a really a fitting way to end this conversation because you've been in markets for so long um, and just to hear you, I guess, compartmentalise it and how it actually works at, a, at a, the big picture is uh, refreshing, particularly when people may be a bit worried about the economy from one quarter to the next, about inflation, interest rates, all of those things. Um, so you can, I'm sure all of my listeners and viewers today can appreciate why it's important to go and bookmark the Australian um, the, the Australian uh, Equities Fund at Fidelity. So, mate, um, hopefully you get a few new followers uh, and potential clients out of this. And thanks for taking some time to, to join me on the Australian Investors Podcast. Oh, I'm very welcome. It's been great talking to you.